welcome to the Hungry Authors Podcast. A hungry author is someone who is, quite simply, hungry for it. They're willing to do what it takes to achieve their writing dreams. If that resonates, you're in the right place. I'm Ariel. And I'm Liz. We're two book coaches, editors, and writers here to help you get there. We interview experts and chat about all things publishing and writing to educate and build a community of successful writers, whatever that means to you. Welcome. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the Hungry Authors Podcast. Today we are super excited to have our friend, writer, speaker, coach, Lisa Ellison on with us. Lisa, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi everyone. I am so glad to be here. Thank you, Ariel and Liz, for having me. Um, I am a writer, editor, and trauma-informed writing coach. So as a writer, I tend to write a lot about the craft of writing. I also work on memoir and various essays. And when it comes to working with authors, I offer one-on-one coaching and I do group coaching around, uh, you know, trauma-informed coaching. And then I work on manuscript evaluations and then I teach classes uh, for Jane Friedman and then also for my own business. And a class I'm super excited about is Camp Proposal, which I'll be teaching in June, which is a class that will teach you not just how to write a proposal, but also how to deal with that head game that comes with writing a proposal. Because as you both know, um, there's a lot more to it than just technique. Yes. Oh my goodness. That sounds amazing. And that head game is something that we are always thinking about, really interested in. And that's really what we want to talk about with you today is that head game. And so you and I chatted um, a, a little while ago and got to know each other. And um, something that really stuck with me from our conversation, which was first of all, super encouraging. And I'm that's why I'm so excited to have you here today but was just this idea of saying yes to yourself as a writer, because you know that there are so many ways that we are inclined to say no to ourselves. So could you just tell us a little bit about what that means to say yes to yourself as a writer? Yeah. So a lot of times when we're thinking about the yes, we're thinking about that external. Yes. You know, we're getting published, we're getting our essays out there, whatever, or we're, you know, a short story. It doesn't matter what the genre is, but it's about some sort of external marker that we're good enough. But in order to get there, there are a lot of ways that we have to say yes to ourselves when, and what often happens is that we end up saying no. Um, and so a lot of those no's are fueled by one thing and that is unworthiness this belief that I'm not good enough, I don't have what it takes, I don't have the skills. And so there's kind of three different ways that that no can show up and it's super subtle. It's often incredibly unconscious and it can often look like productivity and work that makes us go, "Uh, WTF, why isn't this happening? You know, because we think we're doing all the right things. And so because this is the Hungry Authors Podcast, I tried to think about it from that place of hunger. And so the three ways that, you know, I like to think about this that show up a lot in my practice. And and one of the things I feel really blessed about is not only do I understand writing, but I also have an EDS and clinical mental health counseling. So I'm able to marry what I know about motivation and emotions and all of that aspect of our lives with the process of writing. So sometimes what can happen is that people can be what I call too hungry. 
which means they're hyper focusing on the outcome. You know, I've got to get this done and I've got to get it published by, I don't know, my my 30th birthday, my 40th birthday, whatever that mar- milestone is. It's like, it's got to happen and it's got to be a bestseller and it's got to include an agent. And so when we're hyper focused on that external, some of the messages that we end up telling ourselves are, you know, I'm only good enough if X, Y, and Z happens. And so we end up spending all of our time working. We never take breaks. And when someone, I would say, you know, all three of us, because we're in this position to be the ones to tell you this, we say, okay, you finished your draft. Yes, this is awesome. Now go put it away for three months or six months. And their eyes get huge because they think, no, that can't happen because I won't, you know, meet the milestone. And because they do do that, they become blind to whatever the problems are in their work and you end up reworking the same things in a way that's not effective and guess what happens it doesn't work and it reinforces this message of i'm not good enough because you end up getting you know rejections and things like that um and so that's one thing that can happen another thing that can happen is you can fail to honor your own hunger And so that often comes from um, a lack of prioritizing, you know, in your writing life. And so that can look a lot of different ways. Um, You know, it can look like focusing too much time on other people. You know, we can have these messages around worthiness, like I'm only worthy if I'm helping others, or I'm only worthy if I'm being productive. I see this a lot with women, you know, in, in the writing life, because it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this isn't making any money. And in fact, it's costing money and it's taking a lot of time. So maybe I shouldn't do this. Oh yeah. I think we're struggling with that right now (laughs) with our passion projects. Like we even do make money and we still find, find it hard to like find the worthiness. Oh my gosh. It's I'm, I'm right there with you because a lot of these projects take a really long time. You know, a book, I think Lee Gutkin, I was in this, uh, you know, masterclass with him. Of, of, it was a few years back and he said it, it takes between three to five years to finish a book. That's the average. And when it comes to things like memoir, it can take much, much longer because this is something I often tell memoirists is that, you know, when you're trying to write fiction, you are building a world. When you're writing memoir, you're trying to describe your face without looking in the mirror. It's a very different process and, you know, it's possible to do it, but it takes longer, right? Because you don't necessarily have a model for how to make sense of things. Yeah, that makes total, total sense. Um, Going back to the first one real quick, when you said, Mm -hmm. you know, you can be too hungry. That's something we definitely see a lot of too. And one of the reasons why we wanted to start this podcast was because we saw so many authors coming to us almost in like desperation. They were like, Oh my gosh, I need this to happen. And they were placing so much pressure on themselves. And so, and it was, it was just like a, yeah, desperation was the best word Mm -hmm. that we could think of. And we wanted to help them turn that desperation into determination and really positive, you know, action oriented, like here's what you can do. Here's what we know how to do. Um, and so, but I love kind of the reframe into like, how can we just really validate and affirm our own worthiness as writers without any of those performance measures attached to them? Yeah. And I, I think that is so important because I've gotten caught in that trap before of like, oh my gosh, it's got to happen by this time. And if it doesn't, well, what does this mean about me? Right. And, 
I think one thing that's really important is to be continually focusing on your own self growth and really getting to know yourself both you know the pieces of light and talent that you have and also um you know that shadow side that side that maybe doesn't feel as good um because when you know that you can begin to say oh yeah there there it is there's that thing and you know for me mindfulness has been one of the ways that i do that along with therapy um and various different ways of of working on myself um but you know one of the shames that can come from this this part of it like this being too hungry is this belief that I am a highly skilled person, therefore I should be able to do this quickly. Um, I hear this a lot. I'm a great, I'm a great reader. I write really well at my job. And so why is this so hard? And, you know, analogy that I use with people that helps to lower the stakes. So when you're too hungry, what do you do? You have to, you know, care and love for that part of yourself that may be struggling, but also lower the stakes. So you can calm down and and I'll tell people we often we have a lot of experience with cars, right? We ride in cars, we drive cars. We're like, I know a lot about cars. I might even know the different kinds of cars. And, you know, and so we feel confident. We think that, you know, we know things and reading and writing in a lot of different aspects of our lives is like driving or riding in a car. But telling a story is like being a mechanic. And so I'll ask people like, you know, would you feel shame if I if I told you to go, you know, change the manifold in your engine? Like, I don't even know what a manifold is, right? That's what they'll say. And I'm like, do you feel shame about that? And they're like, no, I've never trained to be a mechanic. I'm like, that's the same thing. Mm-hmm. If this is a craft and it takes time to really develop all of those skills. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a joke. I think it's true, though, the statistic that like 80% I don't know where it came from, but I we've heard it like in the industry, right? Like 80% of people like want to write a book or have a book in them. Mm-hmm. And so that sometimes that gets turned into a joke with industry professionals of like, um, yeah, like everybody wants to write a book. You tell somebody you're a writer, they tell you about their book idea, you know, yeah. at every party, um, which I think that's great not to make light of it. But I think because writing, like everyone is capable of writing, mm-hmm. most people anyway, assuming you know, you don't have like a setback there, you know, because we all learn to write in school. So I think sometimes people get, you know, caught up in like, well, I should know how to do this. You know, Mm -hmm. everybody knows how to do this. Um, But yeah, there's, there's, of course, this real craft to it. It's a lot. It's about a lot more than that. That's why, you know, it's a whole industry of people who pay other people to help them with that. Um, Yeah, can we talk a little bit about the trauma stuff, like, tell, tell me about the trauma. <laughs> yeah, no, trauma is a huge piece of this. Um, I mean, at least the work that I do. Right. And, you know, a lot of people think like, oh, that's for the creative nonfiction people, the mm-hmm. memoirists out there. But you all know there are lots and lots of, of novels that are based on you know, someone's life. And you know what, the best novels, even if they are completely about something else, can still tap into some wounded aspect of yourself. And so, you know, one of the other ways that people can really sabotage themselves is what I call failing to recognize when you're too full of emotions or situations that you need to attend to. And so one of the things that happens to people 
um, when they have a really difficult story and they have a lot of passion, right? So, you know, if you want to make it as a writer, you have to understand your why. Like, why am I doing this? Why is this project important to me? And, you know, if your why is all about like, well, I want to, you know, be a bestseller and then I'm going to feel good about myself, that's probably not a good enough why. But if, if it's like, you know, I know that in doing this, I'm going to be able to be of service to others. That's a really clear why. And so people who experience trauma often have that really clear why. I want someone else to not feel alone. I want to help someone else navigate whatever the situation is that I'm experiencing. And so they think, well, you know, yeah, that was painful and I've, I've survived it. If I just white knuckle my way through this manuscript, I'm going to get to the end and number one, I'm going to feel better and I'm going to be able to help other people. But the reality is, is that the first person you have to help is yourself. So when you're writing early drafts, you are telling yourself the story so that you can heal whatever needs to be healed in the story. Right. So there's a lot of alchemy and a lot of medicine that's happening in these early drafts that takes time. And so, you know, that's an important thing to honor, because when you do that, then you can think about the reader. But what people will do is when they're not white knuckling is they keep forcing themselves to come to the page because they think real writers go to the page every single day or they never give up. And, you know, when you're forcing yourself to write about a difficult story, when there's a wounded part of yourself that's saying like, no, 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 not now, not this you are actually re-traumatizing yourself because trauma often includes, you know, a situation where you did not have choices and something happened to you that you did not want to happen. When you force yourself to write like that, you are doing the same thing that happened to yourself. So it reinforces that neural network in your brain around the trauma. And then that just will, you know, can make your whole writing process devolve. And then you're like, well, why can't I write? Or why is this so difficult? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I completely see that. I'm actually reading right now. The body keeps the score as research for a book proposal that I'm working on. And he talks a lot about, you know, therapeutic, um, uh, methods that can unwittingly, you know, re-traumatize someone. Mm -hmm. And obviously we don't want that to happen. And it does happen sometimes when we dive into writing with kind of the wrong intentions or the wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, perspective on it. And so I'm curious because, you know, embodied, um, you know, processing trauma in an embodied way is such an important part of healing. How do you help writers kind of live out kind of that embodied healing where, you know, being able to sit with the pain, being able to, um, kind of understand that that was then that's not now. Mm -hmm. How do you help writers kind of go through that healing process when they're trying to also write about it? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something I actually specialize in. Um, because, you know, one of the things that I think is really important because I used to be, uh, you know, I used to work with people who experienced trauma as a mental health counselor is the concept of do no harm. And so we always want to make sure that we're doing no harm. And so I've actually created this whole um, acronym. And this is how I work with people is the PACE method. So the first thing you have to do is prepare for self-care, which means there are things that you need to put in place in order to be ready to do this writing. And sometimes that means 
recognizing that now is not the time to write. So, you know, when you're writing about traumatic events or difficult life events, you want to think about your energy like a bank account. You know, there are times in the writing life that it feels like we're making all kinds of deposits. But when you are writing about really difficult things, you're taking that money back out, right? That's going to take away from you. And so if you're already living in a depleted um, environment, right, where all of you have all of these other things going on in your life, you may not have the energy at that time to do this kind of writing. And that doesn't mean you have to stop writing altogether, but you may not be able to do that. So you have to, you know, practice self-care. You have to activate your internal wisdom to know is today the day when I have enough credits to be able to do this kind of writing because I'm making a withdrawal? Um, or is today the day that I'm going to write about something that fills me up? And so really beginning to develop that wisdom. And, you know, one of the ways that I do that is through mindfulness. Um, and, you know, there's meditation practices and some people love meditation, some people don't. And, you know, there are certain kinds of meditation that are actually not good for people who have trauma. So meditation is not a panacea. I, I, I work with it in a very specific and intentional way. Um, but then once you've done those two things, you know, self practicing self care, um, activating that internal wisdom, you're going to choose wisely and keep it contained. And there are very specific strategies that you want to do, because when you're thinking about um, work that is really difficult, I always say, you know, think about it as a scale, a one through 10. One is like a fly going by. You're probably not even going to write about it because you're not even going to notice. It's not important to you. A 10 is the most traumatic thing that has ever happened to you. And it's not about like the content, right? I, I write about my brother's suicide. When people hear that, they think, oh my gosh, worst thing ever. And you know what? At one point in my life, yeah, that's how it felt in my body. But because I have, you know, processed that, that's not how it feels anymore. Um, but I say anything that's above an eight is probably in the land of trauma and it's not something you want to write about the very best writing um, is between a four and a seven. You've got feelings about it. You don't know what it means. Maybe you even cry a little when you're writing it, but it doesn't make you want to throw up, run away or quit writing or you're not having some sort of really visceral bodily experience while you're doing the work. If that's happening, that belongs in therapy first. That's so helpful. Oh my gosh. That just that system of having like numbers and giving us some language for it. That's incredible. Yeah. That was like a huge win for me because I didn't even, when I first started writing about these things, I would get myself into a lot of trouble and and you know that could include anxiety and depression because i didn't realize you know people think that if i just write about all the bad stuff it's like ripping a band-aid off and then i'm going to feel better and and you, you it you don't and you know so that having this this language around it and creating these boxes and saying like oh that's a 10 and i'm not going to do that or you know that's an eight and i'm feeling pretty bad right now so mm, we're going to do like a one or a two um is important but we also want to remember that there are many times when we're writing and we think oh that's nothing man that's just a two and then all of a sudden we're like holy cow that is a 15 and i didn't know it um happens all the time happens to me happens to everybody um but, you know, I think thinking about that is is really important and then um, recognizing that sometimes the best way forward 
is not to, when you're thinking about a book, we think, okay, you know, beginning, middle and end, we're going to set up this ordinary world. We're going to go on this journey. The journey is going to have all of these obstacles. So I'm going to be writing about these difficult things for a while. And then there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. and We have this resolution. We can actually also cause problems to ourselves when we're in that middle, that messy middle section, because we're just writing about those difficult events. And again, it can reinforce those neural networks in the brain around trauma. So I'm beginning to teach people how to speak back to the trauma in the moment. Like, let's not wait till the end of your book to make sense of things. Let's make sense of something now because catharsis is not enough. So catharsis, if you don't know that word, is um, you know this idea that if we get the emotions out, we're gonna feel better, but that's not how it works. True resolution happens, the settling of the heart, because that's what I always tell people, it's about settling something in your heart. That's how you know when a project is done is because it's settled inside you, requires you to make meaning from the experience. And so you wanna begin to try to start making that meaning as early as you can, even if, these meaning-making exercises or things you do are not going to actually be in your book. Interesting, especially because I mostly hear writing talked about as um, just purely therapeutic, you know, mm-hmm. um, which of course it can be. None of us would argue that, I think. But yeah, it's um, it's really interesting and resonates to hear it talked about like, oh, but, you know, you can do damage too, Mm -hmm. you know, or there are plenty of times where it can be unhelpful or here's how it, how to actually make it more productive, you know, in your journey. Um, Tell me a little bit more about the meaning making. What does that look like? Yeah. So meaning making is often finding your power again. Mm, right reclaiming that power inside yourself and so there are a variety of different ways that that can happen you know when we're writing a scene especially it's a really difficult scene um you know i'll i'll tell people to focus on the emotional beat and then i'll be like what is an emotional beat (laughs) and the emotional beat is the turning point right so sometimes in the first draft of a really awful thing that happened Um, We're focusing on all of the awful things that have happened to us, but when we create um, that switch, we have to make ourselves the hero of our journey, right? We always have to be the hero of our journey. So we're thinking about what was the decision that you made? And sometimes the decisions we make are misbeliefs, right? So we don't always make the best decision. Sometimes, especially early in, in a book, we're talking about, you know, this thing happens and I believe that no one, I can never trust anyone again. So I try to go off in the world by myself. And then you learn later on that, you know, you can trust some people, but maybe not others. And so the more you can focus on the decision, what decision did you make? How did that decision fuel either, you know, a misbelief or some sort of strength inside you, then you can begin to develop that meaning making around that experience. That makes so much sense. And that's, that's super helpful. So we've been talking a lot about kind of the, the content of the writing itself too, Mm -hmm. but taking a step back to like more of our careers as writers, our dreams as writers, how, how can we affirm our own worthiness as we kind of journey down a path that, like we said earlier, is full of obstacles, you, you know, 
we talked about how you're looking for that external yes so much of the time. I know we've been feeling this lately because our proposal is out, you know, with publishers right now. We've gotten lots of no's. We might have a maybe interested and it's it's scary, you know. It, there's a lot of um there's a lot of question marks in this journey. But at the same time, we have to keep kind of affirming our own worthiness. So how how do we do that? So I think there are a few different ways to do that. And I'll, I'll start with the most immediate one because I also have a book out on submission. So I feel your pain. I know that. Yes. Pain. And it's like, <laughs> it's an interesting place to be because it's really exciting. Cause you're like, Oh my gosh, I've made it this far. And then you're like, Oh, the final hurdle. Can I make the hurdle? And you know, it's, there's just so many unknowns. And I think number one is that in every no, um, you have to find the win. So sometimes those wins are easy because you're like, oh, this was a nice win and it came with, you know, a, a kind thing you said about my writing and I can put that down. But sometimes the win is, you know what? I showed up today and I didn't think about how my book is on, you know, my proposals out there or, you know what? I have submitted my work to X number of, of publishers or X number of agents and, and you focus on those aspects of the, of the win. Um, and that when you're doing that, you're taking control of the process and you want to reaffirm to yourself that you are on time. I do a, a visualization meditation um, many days of the week where I'm really imagining the su success to come. And, you know, in that I'm affirming the fact that um, it could come in many different ways. And I think that's really important, you know, in this publishing environment, because who knows who's going to take your book? I mean, you know, I tell writers all the time, your book is guaranteed to get published because you can always self-publish your book. Now, maybe that's not the choice you're going to make. Um, mm -hmm. And also, just so everyone knows, do not just rush out to self-publish your book because you want to feel like, you know, you're an author and you have a book in your hand. Don't do that. But, but you could self-publish. So beginning to think about, okay, what are all of my options? You know, what are the different choices I could make? gives it a little bit, um, makes it more expansive, right? So it's not this one narrow path. And if this one narrow path doesn't work, then it means I failed. Um, you know, and also thinking about all of these things as experiments, like it's not failure, it's experiment. And often it's, it's an experiment on best fit. Um, and when another thing that I always tell people, and this was a big thing for me, like a big healing that happened to me not too long ago is you've got to begin to identify your interrojects. So your interrojects, like big fancy word, um, mm -hmm. are the these unconscious messages that you have absorbed from other people. And often we absorb them when we're really little. And there's a lot of research going on right now around um, birth process and trauma that can happen through the birth process. We talk a lot, you'll hear like intergenerational trauma um, a lot and, you know, what that means. But some of that is what's happening in your DNA and some of it's what's happening because the people in your life have various messages and it's not about this person is bad or that person is good. It's just that they, they send, they transmit these messages to you and, and it can happen unconsciously and it can happen at the cellular level when you're just even, you know, in gestation and that can in, impact the whole rest of your life. And so, you know, a message that 
I had been carrying was this deep sense of unworthiness. And, you know, and I, I had done all this like therapy and all of these things. And, and it wasn't until I did this certain kind of body work that we really got in touch with it. And um, what was happening is that because that unworthiness was always unconsciously there, I wasn't writing in the most confident way. You know, I could help other writers do this. And if, if you ask me, like, what do I do with my manuscript? This is what you do. You know, what, what do you need to do with these other aspects? It was easy for me to give someone else the answers, but it was hard for me to give them to myself and myself. And when I realized, like, how much of this is due to these unconscious messages and that when you know them, you can let them go, that can make this process much easier because the amount of, um, you know, competition involved in this and all of the messages around like, if you don't do everything, you know, it's not going to work out or, you know, it's not going to work out for most people because only the few survive to the top and get their book published can make it, it can reinforce all of those messages. Like, see, how how am I going to be the one that does it when, you know, it's so hard or there's so many people. And so then we don't even try, you know, and that's where procrastination comes in. Yeah, something we talk a lot about here, and that just feels really important to me in my personal life and to communicate to other writers and professionally is this idea of agency and that you have more, I don't want to say, pardon me, more control than you think, but that you just have more options or even power than you think, like when you're talking about publishing options that, okay, if you don't secure an agent, if nobody wants your proposal, if you don't get traditionally published, that there are still so many other options and you still have so much agency in this process. Um, And there are so many different ways that you can, you know, succeed, I suppose, you know, depending on what your definition of that is, but that, that this can still be, um, that you can still get your message out and you can be a writer and you can um, fulfill your goals. And yeah, it, it, um, I feel like we see that a lot from people, especially when it comes to like traditional publishing, they mm-hmm. feel like there's some gatekeeper that kind of holds the, the keys to something that they want, but that, um, yeah, that we all have, um, have more agency in this, in this process than, than we think we do. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think when it comes to like, I'm putting air quotes here, if you don't see this, you know, yeah. the gatekeepers that sometimes those no's are a gift because mm-hmm. sometimes our work isn't ready, you know? And so I think part of that cho- about thinking about your choices, right? There's the choices around like, how do you get your message out? How do you, um, you know, publish your work if that's really important to you? But I think also, how do you take the wisdom that's within this no and do something with it Um, Mm -hmm. because you could choose to see it as failure or like oh my gosh nobody wants me or you know that but sometimes the no is is there because there's another level of your work that you need to do and we don't often see that and especially if we're too hungry and we're like i gotta get this done now we may not understand that it's not a matter of talent it's just a matter of the process takes time and making meaning is a layered experience. You know, there's not always one level of, of layers that you, layer that you go through, there's many, and you have to be willing to go through that. Um, 
And I think that's an important piece of the process. Do you ever have a client um, ask you like, not to be contrarian, but what if it doesn't feel like meaning making? What if it feels like either, you know, the thing you're writing about or a no from a publisher, a roadblock in your journey? Like, what if it just feels like something that just plain sucked? Like, what if someone doesn't want to find like the meaning, you know, like what if they're just like, well, like there is no good that came from this. It just sucked or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like, what do you, what do you tell those people? Yeah, that, that actually does happen to me. (laughs) The people do say this, um, you know, what I will tell them is some situations do just suck Mm -hmm. and it doesn't make them a good story. Like Mm -hmm. it just sucks. Doesn't make it a good story because right right you know the reader is not looking for your story and it depends on you know where someone is i you know how i would deliver this message because i always want to hold space for the feelings first you know that's i think a really important thing um even though you know my job is to help you write better you know it's really also to be a better human being and that means holding space for that humanness and I remember there was a point in time in, you know, the difficult things that happened in my life where that did just suck. And that's the only thing I could see. And that just means you're not ready to write about this yet. Um, Because the reader is looking for a mirror for their soul. They're looking for something that helps them learn, something that helps them understand something about themselves, something that teaches them whatever it is that they need to do. So they're learning vicariously through reading your work. And readers don't want to read, it just sucks, because all that does is fuel their hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's not being of service to their reader. And so what I would tell the writer is, well, just keep writing. You know, it may not be the right time to publish, or it may not, this, this story may not be for everyone else, but trust that if you continue to work with a story, if that calls to you, then there's an opportunity to make some sort of meaning in that, even if the meaning is, you know, this is how you survive things that really suck, or this is how you deal with things that have no meaning. Um, Mm -hmm. That can be its own gift to learn how to do that. Lisa, you mentioned procrastination earlier as kind of a, a way that our feeling of unworthiness perhaps manifests. And I'm curious if you see things like imposter syndrome and um, like writer's block, common problems that writers often say, do you see that? Do you think that at the root of those kinds of problems is this feeling of unworthiness? I would say yes. Um, You know, procrastination at the biggest level is this feeling like I, you know, it's better to have a dream and not have tried than it is to try and fail. And so there's a way that your dream can be perfect. Your your book can be perfect if you never try to make it happen. So as at the ideal level, it's always perfect. And when people really struggle with a sense of worthiness, that um, that can seem safer than trying. Because, you know, a lot of times when we experience um, a lack of worthiness, 
we come from invalidating environments. And again, this isn't about making anybody good or bad, but not everyone has the skills to be a parent. It's just straight up true. And there are things that people do that are straight up not okay because they have a lack of skills and those things can be really harmful. And so if you don't have, and, and, and you know, a lot of times those people also don't have skills and the thing that's not taught, especially in these invalidating environments is the value of failure and how, you know, going through life as a series of, and seeing this as a series of experiments is how you actually succeed and being willing to say like, wow, that one didn't work. Okay, what was that about? Developing that sense of curiosity is important. And if you don't have that skill, if that wasn't taught to you, then um, it's gonna make it really terrifying to try. And and I can say that is true for me because I didn't learn that skill. I talked with my dad about this like not too long ago, like we didn't learn how to fail. And that was really made all of this really hard. And I'm so glad I stuck with it because I learned how. Um, so I think that's a piece. And imposter syndrome is the same. It's like, you know, it's it's the opposite in some ways. It's like, I'm going to build this armor around me so that you never see like how I'm a fraud. Um, and so, you know, procrastinators will never try. Um, people with imposter syndrome often try way too hard or they they feel like they have to be perfect and there's a lot of anxiety around that because it's like if i if there's any chink in the armor you're gonna see this deficiency inside me so i think they're they have the same root but they just show up in a different way oh that's so interesting i never thought of them kind of as like two sides of the same coin that they're so they really are so related and they're definitely ways that you know we see writers sabotaging themselves without even mm -hmm. realizing it for sure. Oh my gosh. And in, in some of the subtlest, trickiest, sneakiest forms of procrastination look like you're working towards your goal. Here's a few yes. of the options. And I, and you know, one over scheduling, um, this is a, like, I am like, I know, <laughs> I'm raising, raising hand. my hand because I am so guilty of over scheduling myself. <laughs> oh my gosh. My hand is raised too. That is my kryptonite, and it comes from optimism. This uh, this optimistic belief that things are going to take less time than they do. Like there was this one magical time when it only took me twenty minutes, and therefore I think it's always going to take twenty minutes, and it really takes an hour. And so that's one way that I can get myself in trouble. And then you're like, how did my calendar get so full? Where is my writing time? And what just happened here? And and writers do this all the time with writing groups and also with taking classes. So, you know, writing groups are amazing. I highly recommend them and classes are awesome because you know what, remember we're learning how to be mechanics and you gotta learn that, you gotta learn your trade. But I've seen writers who are like, yeah, I have this book idea. And then they've taken class after class, after class, after class. And I asked them, okay, how much, you know, how much progress have you made on your book? And they're like, well, I'm still collating my class notes or, you know, I have all this feedback I have to provide to everyone else. And then it takes away from their book. And then, you know, a year passes and they're like, how, why didn't I make any progress? I was working on my writing this whole time. I probably fall more into that critic. Well, I just always think I need more information. I'm like, I need to take another class. I need to hire another coach. I need to like, I just need more information. There's like one magical thing I'm gonna learn next. And then that's gonna like 
unlock <laughs> everything else that I'm going to do, which is going to be amazing. Whatever it happens, it's going to be great. Yeah. And you know, and I think this is something that I had to learn because I was totally like that. I'm like, no, I can't know, you know, a hundred percent of whatever it is I have to know. I have to know 150%. And in right. the day that I learn, no, 150%, I will be qualified. Right. I should have lots of pieces of paper and lots of information. And then I will be qualified. And again, I, I think some of that is very endemic to women, like because I, there's yeah, we definitely. we are definitely socialized to believe that. And there are a lot of men who are like 60 percent. That's what I need. And I'll figure the rest out on my way on the way. And what I've learned is that the more I embrace that idea that maybe I just, you know, 60% is way too low. I will, I will have panic attacks if I try to do that, but 75 and 80, like if I say, okay, I, I only need to know 75 or 80% and I will pick up the rest on the way. Um, I've made a lot more progress than I did when I felt like I had to know 150% because that was, I learned a lot, but it was also paralyzing. Yeah. So Lisa, I think one of the very first times we communicated by email, I think you emailed me about the article that I had written about self-efficacy. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, and we haven't talked a lot about self-efficacy on this podcast. We could probably do that another time, but self-efficacy is one of my favorite topics. And I see so much connection here with this idea. So for those of you who don't know, you're hearing this word for the first time, self-efficacy is our belief in our own ability to accomplish a goal and self-efficacy. You know, we have self-efficacy about like doing the laundry. I know from lots of lots of experience that I I, if I follow these steps, my laundry is going to turn out exactly how I want it to turn out. And we just don't have that same, um, you know, that same assurance. We don't have that same self-efficacy around something like writing a book, especially if it's our first time. So, um, Lisa, can you talk a little bit about like, what is the connection between self-efficacy and worthiness? How do those two like play into each other? Yeah. So you know, when you have self-efficacy and you're doing things with a sense of confidence and you're getting the results that you want, it reinforces that sense of worthiness. So it can be this, you know, great cycle, but it can also be the opposite, right? If you don't have self-efficacy and, you know, you're trying to do things, but it's not working out, it kind of creates that same, it's an opposite loop. Um, and so what I often tell people, you know, people will come to me like, oh, I have this great book idea and I, I want to work on this book and, you know, and they don't have any publications, which you don't have to have a publication necessarily to write a book. Um, but I, I'll tell them, you know, sometimes starting with something small is a great way to learn the skills that will allow you to have the kind of self-efficacy and confidence that's required in order to write a book. Um, you know, this is very true in, in memoir space, you know, it takes a long time to figure out what things mean. And so I call writing a book like eating your vegetables and probably the one sometimes that you hate the most. Right. So think of what that is. It's like eating a lot of that um, canned kale. I do not like canned kale. I will never eat it. But sometimes the process of writing a book can feel like, you know, eating a lot of canned kale, whereas writing an essay whether it's a flash piece or something else is like dessert because you can finish it. And when you finish something, it gives you confidence you can finish. 
And when you finish it well and you make meaning from that, that also gives you confidence like, oh yeah, now I know how to make meaning. And, and sometimes, you know, I'll tell authors like, write a few different essays that are in relation to your book. And this is not the same as carve out a chapter from your book and send it someplace. I'm not talking about that, but like, it can be based on a theme or a topic or even, you know, a, a small scene or something in your book. When you begin to make sense of that, it helps you make sense of your book. Like, what is it I'm really trying to say? And so I think that there are ways that small incremental bits of success builds self-efficacy, which allows you to be able to have that self-efficacy when you try to take on some of these larger projects or some of these more challenging aspects like querying agents or, you know, publishers or going out on submission. Yeah, it's almost like you're just gathering like little proofs, you know, like collecting these little proofs that you can do it a well to draw from. Like even in, I read the book, The Confidence Code by Kathy somebody and Katie somebody. Anyway, they're two journalists. <laughs> um, and it's sort of this um, kind of academic approach to like, how do we build confidence specifically in women? And, and, um, and a lot of what they said was, uh what we need to do is accumulate proof that you can yes. do something like you know like true confidence like people say like fake it till you make it and like acting and, and stuff like that and that actually isn't like real confidence real confidence is comes from more like self-efficacy like your actual belief and where does that belief come from usually the fact that you've done it before well what do you do if you haven't done it for we'll do something smaller you know and yes. like um, Mindy Kaling has this amazing uh, essay. It's actually one of, became one of the chapters in her second book where she describes she was on some panel and a young Indian girl stood up and said, like, how did you have, where did you find the confidence to pitch your own show to Fox that centered around, you know, an Indian woman? And Mindy said it had been a long day. She was tired and she gave kind of a rote answer of like, oh, like my parents instilled confidence in me, you know, whatever my personality, yada, yada. And she went home or to their hotel room and she was feeling kind of bad later because she realized that that wasn't it at all. And then the, she wrote this resulting essay about how if she could go back, what she would really tell that girl is, well, I worked on the office and I knew that I could walk mm -hmm. into a room. No, I hadn't run my own show. No, I wasn't the main character of a show. But what had I done? I'd written like over 50 episodes of a show. I had acted in a show. I had, you know, and she was like, and it was the accumulation of all these other things that gave me the belief. It's like you're 75, you know, mm -hmm. like she didn't 100% know. She'd never done it before. What did she have? She probably 75% done it, mm -hmm. you know, and um yeah and so i just love that that it's like okay try something smaller and then follow through build that self-efficacy prove to yourself that you can do it and then use that to fuel something else you know yeah i i love that the that analogy and that way of thinking about it because it's true and like you know some a way that i'll, I'll talk about this that really helps writers is i talk about running i'll say mm -hmm. if you've never run before would you start with a marathon because that is what a book is, is a marathon. And, right. you know, and they're like, well, because I'll say, if you're going to say yes, I'd like you to put your shoes on now and go run it. 
right? <laughs> They're like, well, no, I would start with a mile, you know, or some smaller thing. And that's the same mindset that you want to build because I think self-efficacy is a muscle. You know, it's not one of those things where it's like you have it or you don't. It's a muscle yes. that you train and you exercise. And the more you do that, the more, the stronger it becomes. And then the more able you are to take those bigger risks. That's so beautifully said. I, I love that. That's just such a succinct way to explain something that feels kind of complicated sometimes, but I love that. Okay, Lisa, this has been so illuminating and helpful. I'm really excited to get this out there into the world. Where can people connect with you to learn more about the classes that you offer and your writing, hopefully to cheer you on as you celebrate a book soon? So the best way to connect with me is through my website, uh, lisacooperellison.com. I uh, offer a weekly newsletter. And in that newsletter, I talk a lot about the craft of writing and also how to live and write authentically um, and from a place of having an open heart. So, you know, that is a great way to connect with me. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram um, at Lisa Cooper Ellison. So that's a great place also. And then at Twitter, I'm at Lisa Ellison's pen. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great honor. Thanks for being part of the hungry authors community. If you like this episode, could you do us a huge favor? Head on over to Apple podcasts and leave us a review. We would so appreciate it. You can also follow us on Instagram at hungryauthors or hungryauthors.com, our website, to get more information about our masterclasses and upcoming episodes. Remember that you have a story and a message worth publishing. And if you've got the hunger, you can make it happen.